Our preaching text this morning is from the Old Testament. You can find it in Exodus, which is the second book of your Bible, chapter three, verses seven through 15. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing of milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have passed with the people out of Egypt, you will worship on this holy mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I do go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What then shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you should tell the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So there is this poem that has been ringing around in my ears for the last few weeks, and I'd like to share it with you this morning. It's by a poet named Jane Mead, and the poem is called Substance Abuse Trial. He mispronounces you, the judge, rhyming your first with your second name, making you into something ridiculous. Gillis Willis Mead. But you stand as still as they taught you in the army when you were a young man trying hard to keep secret what you knew about how to kill with germs. As quiet as we used to stand on the front porch together at dusk listening for the first cricket of the evening. Now you stand accused of wanting to die of saying so endlessly with needles and the speechless track marks recording it all. The evidence is a red river mounting. It wants to carry you away like an old chair some fisherman forgot to take home, and I want to shout, listen, this man is my father. I love him. Is there a place where all those things that catch in the back of the throat gather and shape themselves into something as soft as the G in Giles was meant to be pronounced? Is that where you thought you were going? If you weren't already able to guess, 
This poem is written by a young woman who is standing at the trial of her father. She's bearing witness to this trial. The poem, it begins with overhearing a judge mispronounce his name as he hands a sentence down to the man. And in the poem, this speaker, this daughter, she's not protesting his innocence. She's not disputing charges. She is simply saying, get his name right. In fact, she begins the poem not by saying he mispronounces your name. Interestingly enough, she says he mispronounces you. She's saying this isn't just some criminal. It's not one of your statistics. It actually doesn't matter whether or not he did what he's been accused of. He is still my father, and his name, it matters. For this woman, she's not quibbling over semantics. This man's name, it identifies him to her in some fundamental, deeply personal way. It gestures to something she seems to understand to be at the core of his sense of self and identity. And so she says, just get it right. And whether we ever consciously think about this or not, I actually think that most of us have experienced how deeply names can matter. When someone remembers our name, it does something to us inside. New parents, they him and they haw over picking just the right baby name for their child who's on the way. Most of us, we couldn't get to the places we need to go without our names stamped on our passports and our driver's licenses and our credit cards. They identify us. Some of us, we are lucky enough to be named after someone. And all of us, we uh, have inherited our last names that have been passed down from generation to generation. And so these names, they can signify something about who we are and where we're from. Names, they can even signal a type of knowing, a relationship that we have with someone else or that they think they have with us. Growing up into this day, my closest family members call me Katie. Now, I would never call myself that or introduce myself in that way, but when they say it, it's quite endearing. And if a stranger or an acquaintance were to come to me and say, Katie, it would feel a little bit like a breach of intimacy. I'd be like, wait a minute, right? Because names, they aren't just names. They matter. Which is probably why people for centuries have been squabbling over what to name God. And why the Lord's Prayer, it traditionally begins with the line, Our Father, who art in heaven. Now I suppose that it should be said from the outset that just about any name we've got for God is always going to be somewhat insufficient. No one of us can ever really know who or what God is like, and even if we could, I'm not sure our human language could contain all that God is. And perhaps that's why there are so many different names and images for God in the Bible. In the part of the Exodus story that we read for this morning, when Moses asks God for a name so that he can go to the Israelites and tell them who sent him, God gives kind of an evasive answer. He says, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I'm sure Moses was like, yeah, thanks, God, great. 
God is essentially telling Moses, I can't really be pinned down in a name, Moses. If you really want to know who I am, or you want to know who I will be for you or the Israelite people, you are going to have to go on this journey with me. You are going to have to allow yourself to experience what I do and come and see. But despite this, for centuries, the church has often prioritized certain names for God over others, Father being one of them, in part because it's used so often in the Bible and in part because Jesus used it, so why shouldn't we? But that's not the only name Jesus ever used for God. He also used spirit and love. He used masculine and feminine words and words that were neither. And he used images like dove and farmer and yeast to describe God. See, because I think Jesus knew that different names have the power to move people differently. And so perhaps many names are more helpful than just a few. And Jesus also used the word father because in his particular context, the concept of the household was one of the primary ways that people ordered and thought about and lived out their lives. Traditionally, the father was the head of a household. He was the head householder, and it was their responsibility to order and manage all of the relationships in the house. Now, the house back then is different from what we think about today. Today, we think about it as a nuclear family. But back then, the household, it included multi-generational relationships and slaves and animals and the land. They lived in this large community that cared for and relied upon each other for even the most basic needs. And in the religious texts that Jesus was raised with, the householder was actually commanded with the responsibility to order not just any type of relationship, but fair and equitable ones within the community. And so when, God, when Jesus refers to God as Father, part of what might be shaping his imagination is this image of God as the householder of the world. A God who cares deeply about the creation of an earthly community that orchestrates fair and right and just relationships within it. This is a God that is interested in delivering all those who are wounded and hurting and oppressed, all those who have not experienced life to the fullest or who are experiencing relationships that are not kind or compassionate or fair or equitable and to lead them into freedom and healing and a more abundant way of life. Now today, there's all sorts of debates in the church about what names to use for God. Some people think that we should throw the word father right out or use it less and less because it's been given primacy for so long in part because we have grown up and lived in a largely patriarchal church and society. And this image has left people with the impression that that's the only thing you can call God. Very practically speaking, there's also people for whom they have difficult relationships with their father, and so the idea of God as father is not necessarily freeing or liberating in any way. And so perhaps folks are right. 
Sometimes words, they can be used for so long that they get co-opted and turned into something they weren't intended for. And maybe the way to experience God's freedom and healing for some people is to choose new words. But I think the thing that I find interesting in all of this is that regardless of which names we choose, all of the names that we've ever used for God, they come out of our world and our context and our experiences that we live. These words, even Father, they meant something to people. They touched down in deeply personal places in other people's lives and they helped folks not only think about and conceptualize of God, but to connect with a God that is sometimes hard to see and know. Think about the instances when something is stripped of a name or it isn't given a name. Think about maybe a farmer who chooses not to name their animals because to name an animal might create a relationship and therefore an emotional attachment with something that's going to one day be your dinner. Naming, it makes a connection and a relationship possible. As in Jane Mead's poem at the beginning, it moves something from a concept or an object that we think about to something that we can know and feel and love. Over these next 40 days, we are invited to focus on connecting with God, letting God into some of the deepest and hardest places in our lives and inviting God to change us. And the practice of prayer is one of the most fundamental ways that we can do that. Prayer, in many ways, is our practice of learning how to name God for ourselves. Because connecting with God is not always an easy thing to do. But prayer is an invitation to begin a relationship with a God who not only reaches out to us and wants to know us, but also wants us to know God back. In prayer, we aren't going to learn everything there is to know about God. We may not all even experience God or call God by the same things. But in many ways, we are given the same opportunity Moses was given. Not to find one right name, but to come and see. To experience and cultivate a relationship with God that moves us and changes us and to discover the names for God that best fit our experience. At UMC Madison, we want not just to know how to think about God. We want to be able to connect with God. We believe that people can know the love of God personally and deeply and in transformational ways, in ways that transform relationships and people's minds and lives and all the things that are broken. And we want to create space for people to be able to do that here. And so you will notice that every week in our bulletin, when we print the Lord's Prayer, we print both the words, God and Father. It is our way of both naming a God who has asked us to participate in a world community that creates more just relationships between all the members of the household of God, and we create space for people to find other names for God 
that might help them experience the healing love of the gospel when maybe the words you or I prefer cannot. And you know, cultivating this relationship, this connection with God, it's important because it is the thing that changes lives and communities and the world. I find that sometimes we are tempted to sort of forego these personal spiritual practices. We sort of write them off as acts of piety that maybe get in our way or are a waste of time or a distraction from the real work of God to serve and heal and change our communities. But when we pray, we actually create space in our lives to hear from God and to experience a love that frees and heals so that when we go out to do work in the community, we know we are serving a power greater than ourselves. And so that when we do this work, we are sharing something not just that we've had a lot of really great thoughts about, but that we've experienced personally and deeply because it's changed our lives. As we journey through this season of Lent together, we're going to give you lots of opportunities to name God for yourself, to commit to practicing prayer so that you might learn to hear the voice of God in your own life, ringing in your own ear so that you might know what it sounds like. And if you weren't here on Ash Wednesday, this morning, when you come up to receive communion, you are invited to move either to the right or left, and you can take a set of prayer beads. These prayer beads are something you can make in your own time. They have instructions in them for how to make them, and you can also take, there's a little resource there that teaches you how to use them with some prayers that you can say. This is supposed to be one tool, just one, that can help us learn to not only keep track of our prayers, but focus as we connect on God each week. We can carry them around with us as a reminder that God is with us and that God desires to connect with us. When you create them, you'll see that they form a circle, which reminds us of the ways that we are connected and in community with one another and rely on each other. And so we invite you to take one of these this week and to maybe carry it around with you and to practice this art of prayer during the Lenten season. And as you take one, I hope that you will be reminded this day that through these next 40 days there is a God who creates you and loves you and names you and knows you and wants to be known by you. Let's pray together. Gracious and holy God, we are so thankful that you avail yourself to us. That your voice is something that we can hear and know for ourselves if we only slow our lives down long enough to listen. God, we ask that in this season of Lent, in the hardest and darkest places of our lives, that your spirit would pour out upon us, would enter into those places and that we might hear a word from you, that it might be a healing word and a hopeful word and a word of courage and grace and whatever it is that we need this day. 
so that we can respond to the call on our lives to go out into this world and be your light and your love for a whole lot of other people who are also hurting. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus the Christ and God's people said together, amen.